the Wizard and Oz podcast, a future-focused show looking at current events and what we can do about them. I'm joined by the Wizard, Tristan Barker, an infamous internet troll turned investment banker, reformed fugitive and indigenous environmentalist. Alongside him, Oz Sultan, a Republican district leader in Harlem focused on clean tech and blockchain legislation, an American Muslim. He's also heavily focused on bridging the gap between faiths. My name is Lachlan. I'm your moderator, and I'm a Halal Snack Pack enthusiast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, Rocket Tech Support. Protect your computer, protect your community, protect your country. This week, we want to take a look at the uh, post-COVID professional landscape. It's been a turbulent few years and the impact of COVID on uh, a number of different areas of our professional lives is becoming more and more apparent as time goes on. I have two experts alongside me here who are really well placed to talk about this. So let's start with, um, I think, leadership in, in the workplace and the impact that uh, that COVID has had on uh, the relationship between uh, managers and employees. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining on this episode. Let's uh, let's jump right into it. So, the relationship between uh, managers and employees, I think, has been uh, challenged over the last few years, and and mm-hmm. uh, that landscape looks very different than what it did, uh, you know, even twenty years ago. Uh, it's obviously changed pretty pretty dramatically. So, Oz, um, tell me about your experience in that area. Sure. I'm actually going to take it back a little further. Um, so my dad uh, was a company man uh, in a steel company called Coppers. And uh, that was based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He worked there for about 50 years. And, you know, that was the previous generation. That was, you know, boomers. And so me being... Gen X, uh, we had gone through the the first sort of decade of digital transformation, you know, having next computers and inside of our, our um, colleges, having um, the basic internet, which you had to like telnet into to begin with, the first browsers, um, the first word processors, you know, the, the first Adobe suites, um, the first third party, you know, creative suites, which were on, on Unix, like the GIMP or on Linux. Um, and a lot of the technology that like bubbled up to become the internet and in the era that I was going to college, which was like the nineties into the early OOs, um, we had two sort of different management styles, I think in America that became pretty prevalent. One was based upon general electrics, Jack Welsh. And I have a bunch of older friends that actually worked for Jack directly. I did some consulting work at GE, um, and GE fleet capital you know, back in like 99 and in 2000. And they had an interesting methodology. They had um, what was called a, a Six Sigma program for making sure that you're achieving just like the basic compliance levels that you have to do at each step to get a project moving. And then as you were moving through that project, how we were benchmarking it and tracking it and, and making sure it was successful, right? And then at the end of that, they did kind of an analysis. On the opposite side of this, you had um, Larry Ellison. And uh, Larry Ellison had um, hired a buddy of mine, Jerry Hasty, who 
I lost track of Jerry during COVID. I'm not sure if he's still alive. Um, but he built Ellison's first sales forces um, when Oracle was just nascent. And, and what we've seen is Oracle is not just, you know, dominant in databases and, you know, mid-range software for financial systems, but they're also in blockchain. They're getting themselves into the metaverse. There's, there's all this stuff that's happened. And the cultures of these two companies, Oracle on the one side, General Electric on the other, both of which are highly diversified, have hundreds of thousands of employees, um, and, and really kind of a similar culture to your management consulting, like your Cap Geminis and, and that sort of thing in the world, where, again, hundreds of thousands of people doing, doing consulting work for these larger companies, was one of meritocracy, but one that was really kind of you being focused on the work. There was training, there was mentorship, there were leadership programs. And going into the OOs, you know, we, we started to have diversity programming and other things that came into play that sometimes were useful, but more often than not, were just lip service where they would send you to some workshop that you didn't really learn anything else. At. You didn't really become more acclimatized to, you know, some of your minority or foreign counterparts or even your women counterparts. Um, and you still had a bunch of stratified issues inside of the, the management landscape. Um, and large corporate America is interesting because you'll have people working, you know, very hard for very long hours, um, you know, at, at salaries that sometimes you just kind of question the salary, but it's sort of the dedication to the job. It's the ethos. It's, it's what, you know, good teams built. It's what good leadership built. Um, when I was at The Economist, I had a great boss um, and she, you know, really kind of instilled like a lot of cultural values in us. It was fun, um, you know, but it was work and it was things that could get done, but we had levity. Uh, over the course of the generation of Web 2 into Web 3, I think what we've had is we've had some, some big shifts. The, that big corporate mindset that had stemmed from General Electric and Oracle kind of cascaded into this like constant work culture um and i first saw this with companies like trilogy you know which like they came to carnegie mellon to recruit and they'd be like they'd be like it's so great you know you can work long hours and we allow you to sleep under your desk if you need to and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> i was like that doesn't sound very it's like you get free t-shirt and i was like fuck the free t-shirt i mean i was like i don't want to be sleeping under my desk but you take that forward like two decades and you see this in Elon Musk's Twitter, you know, it's like only the hardcore will stay. And, and it's kind of the same thing, but it's, it's this meritocracy without merit. And it's why you've had subreddits bubble up like anti-work. It's why you have all of this sentiment now where people are kind of questioning uh, the sensibility of, you know, leaders like Howard Schultz of Starbucks. It's one of the reasons where um, you're seeing unions pop up again, and it's also a hundred year cycle, right? The same things that we're seeing happening with these companies right now are, are really kind of a leadership challenge because people have realized that the meritocracy that was isn't really there. It's an illusion in, in a respect in a lot of these companies, even, even at companies like Uber, where people were putting in the hours and the time and these types of things, they didn't necessarily see that, you know, give rise to the right type of promotion, the right type of stock allocation, the right type of bonusing. And I mean, I myself working for consulting companies and large corporations have gotten screwed over in bonuses multiple times where we know they made a tremendous amount of money, 
but you know, they're like, I'm sorry, there's just no money for this, even though you've exceeded parameters, right? And so that's what it was. That's what it's gotten into. That's where the landscape is. Um, but over the course of the past two years, we saw just a, a dramatic shift because everything moved to work at home. And, you know, Tristan, you can kind of speak to some of this stuff as well. But when we had to go to distributed management and we had to start using software tools in an effective manner, uh, and when we needed leadership and there was problems with leadership, what we found was that there were significant holes across the landscape from the executive to the director level to, you know, your line manager level to, to even like your just collaborative teams where there's a little bit of a pass the buck attitude. Sometimes there's not the appropriate training that's been afforded. Sometimes you're ramping up people into roles that have become transformative themselves. You know, like just consider, uh, we weren't talking about prompt engineers in December of last year, okay? It's now April and we're talking about prompt engineers becoming kind of a, a, a thing that you should have across every division in every country, in, in every country, in every company. Um, and, and it's a big technological shift. It's a radical shift. So three things I, I see are happening at the same time. The old management styles haven't had the mentorship and the leadership to transform into the new management that's really inheriting all of this. Um, and there was like a, a lot of retirement. Right. There was a lot of retirement in there. The boomers retired. Some of the Gen X retired. A lot of the stuff's been handed over to millennials and Gen Z. They have different attitudes on work. They have different attitudes on life. They have, they don't really have that old perspective that I'm going to work here for a long time. Um, and they definitely don't have the perspective that I should be slaving, you know, for a lot of these jobs, especially when we've got a bifurcation in between like service jobs and what I guess you'd call knowledge worker jobs, like anything that requires a degree and, you know, largely pays like 60,000 plus a year. Um, and even at the service level, we've seen an increase in salaries, but we've seen challenges against, you know, all sorts of problems that are occurring that are very reminiscent of what we saw in the Industrial Revolution. Not enough shifts, not enough shift time, um, you know, punitive actions from your, your line managers, punitive actions from your directors, um, you know, punitive actions in the case that you try to unionize, a variety of things like that. And, and it, it's, it's led to a cultural perspective now where we're seeing all these shifts in live time. So one is that you have that 100-year cycle, right? Industrial revolution to new technological industrial revolution. Two, you've had a migration away from what the old standard of culture was um, with you know, the companies that basically built the 80s, the 90s, and the 00s. Uh, the third is that, you know, a lot of the, the big tech companies that had adopted some of these, like, just keep working, you know, type strategies is it's burning people out and people don't necessarily want that. And, and what we're seeing is, too, that like health issues, other things that people have aren't getting taken really seriously by some of these employers. Um, I mean, I've seen posts where, you know, someone's uncle had cancer and they died and they keep getting calls from the employer that the person's going to be fired if they don't show up and it's like, well, he can't, he's dead. Um, and they, mm. they told at least three different people in the company. They told HR, they told the manager, they told someone else, but it just doesn't register. 
So there, there's, there's what I, I call it the empathy buffer. And there's this huge empathy buffer in between like what the expectation of an employee is and what the reality of the company is. And this is pervaded from corporate America into like web two startup culture. And now I'm even seeing it in web three startup culture, you know, where people want you to work slavishly and devotedly, but oftentimes more than not, the leadership isn't there. Like they don't know what they want to do. They don't have a vision. They may not have a mission and they're kind of like pivoting around ideas, you know, on the whole concept of fail fast, fail often, but like they're just failing, you know, or they're burning investor capital or they're alienating customers. Um, and, and that's really kind of the crux of where we are. We've got some corporate culture that works because it's transformed a bit. And there's been a handing of the torch. There's been leadership changes. There's been, you know, a handing of information over. But I got to tell you, everything from working with large banks where you had just huge forced retirements and all these people are like, okay, well, I'm done. We're leaving. And so now you have a bunch of Gen Xers and millennials who are like, well, no one taught us how to do these mid-month reconciliations and this and that and everything else. And so you end up having like typically like about 28 months worth of like stumbling until they come to like a new normal. And then they can, they can start rising in, in success again. Um, and in the startup culture, I mean, especially specifically the Web3 startup culture, I got to tell you, out of every 10 companies that I've talked to, and, you know, some I've done some work for, and a lot of which have just been like past, <laughs> you have executives coming together where they don't know what they want to do. They hired a bunch of people in to kind of help them come up with the product, but they don't have a vision. They haven't thought about their audience and they're not doing some of the most basic things to kind of help build and grow. And that leads to crap culture and the service industries. We see what's going on with Starbucks and, you know, the, 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 the testifying in front of Congress by Howard Schultz and, and the, the union breaking that's been going on. We see the same thing with Amazon. Um, we're, we're seeing the opposite inside of some of the supply chain industries because costs have gone up. You know, um, <laughs> I had a friend in the Bronx that moved to Miami and I was like, well, what are you doing down there now? And he's like, I'm driving a commercial truck. And I was like, what? And he was like, <laughs> yeah, cause I make, I make like three to $4,000 a load. And he does like, you know, two loads a week. Uh, each ride is like a two, three day ride, but he's making more money than he could, you know, at kind of even like a management job with the experience he has <clears> and the education he has. And so I see, I see that's kind of the crux of the problem. You have challenges with leadership, you have challenges with transformation, you don't have a handing of the torch or hand, you know, from one generation to another. Um, you've lost a lot of your corporate training and corporate guides, and there's huge attrition. Like uh, IBM used to have, I did consulting work there, like God, maybe about eight, nine years ago. And then they were talking that the the, the like the tenured people, you know, the people who were experienced had only been there for like three or four years. Whereas before it used to be people who had been there for like 20 or 30 years. Um, yeah, I think the, you, the days of the 30 year, 30 years service, get the gold watch, uh, are kind of over. <laughs> uh, now I, I, over I, I, just don't, I think that's going away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's not coming back. Um, and it's, it's interesting the, the way that you're describing 
the uh, the motivations for, for people um, finding new areas of work and and um, your your friend who's who's now driving trucks despite having all of this this uh, other professional experience just just mm-hmm. due to the amount of money available. Um, there's a lot of that in in Australia at the moment because we have a really high um, in, in particular, really high inflation and really low unemployment, which is a, a pretty unique kind of circumstance to to be in. And what it means is that people value money really highly mm-hmm. and have a lot of bargaining power with employers. Um, and it means that we have a similar people situation are, in America. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, I would imagine it'd be for for pretty sort of similar similar reasons fu- fundamentally, but. Um, it, it, it has really shifted the, uh, the dynamic between the, the employer and the, and the, the candidate, um, part of the, and, mm-hmm. and it makes it, makes it really part challenging. You know, that the, there's a lot of competition there. It means that they have the opportunity to, um, you know, if, if you're going to work 70 hours a week, get abused at work, um, you know, punitive measures for whatever, uh, for a really low pay, you go, well, fuck this. Why wouldn't I go? Uh, somewhere else because there are so many people looking for me and my skill set. I have the opportunity mm. where I can uh, I can just go down a different a different avenue, which is which is rare. Like we, uh, I don't think there's been a circumstance like that for a really really long time. Uh, well, 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 Tristan, the, the only reason that exists in its current form is because that's an entire generation of people who've accepted that they're not going to get a house, right? Mm. So. Mm actually far less tied to job security over a 100 day period that none of these incentives are the same as that they used to be and they're not operating under the assumption that they're going to get a mortgage and they're going to get a house out of any of this crap and so by accepting that they're not going to get that false carrot there's a whole bunch of of consequences that happen externally in the larger world um and in you know in terms of the country's financial future as well as those 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 ideas have just shifted internally. People are just like, well, yeah. we're possibly flat, you know, with three or four people until we're 40, 50 years old. Like, I'm sure it'll turn out even longer. Um, people are getting, think- they're even placing, they're, I've noticed they're placing a lot more, uh, they're, they're, they're placing a lot more of their decisions around the idea of never having kids um as well and Mm -hmm. so as a result it 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 does it does create a sense of power in that negotiation but it's it's a prey animals negotiation though is the problem (laughs) consider that that, that what you just said like like these large corporations were offering you free ivf to freeze your eggs because you had to work longer you know, to achieve that brass ring, as, as they called it at General Electric, right? So you get to the executive level. But these are all people who had to show up at Google to find out if they were still employed by their badge letting them in or not. Like, I mean, this is, mm. we're, we're basically at that 1925 inflection point with steel mills, but the steel mills are Google and Amazon and fa- Facebook or Meta. The good some of these news- larger... Yeah. Good. There's good news in that because I I actually don't agree with what Lockie said about the 30 years and the gold watch thing being a thing of the past. That's not true, actually. 
what uh, people should be looking at now that we're having the growth of these mega corporations and because they have more diversity and function than stuff like steel is uh, mm -hmm. the US is ripe uh, for the rise of Zaibatsu type organizations. Like Musk is already kind of doing it. Um, yes. Bezos, Bezos is not the be all and end all of the direct to consumer revolution of consumerism as well. He mm. is the first symptom. He is the first wave out of many sets like that in terms of look at how many things we still haven't done the basic math to get to A to B of human presses button drone drops thing to human. We're, we're mm -hmm. far behind that. That's really where our, our possible commerce is. And we're very far from that. And all of that's yet to come. And I think that it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to have the same sense of freedom, especially in consumer choices as we once had, but we'll actually mm -hmm. start seeing a rise of quality rather than a complete just fuckery of anti-competitive behavior, like in Jeff Bezos's case, when there is five Amazons. And well, I think, think you're right. In principle, I, I, I agree, but I, I think that things need to, things will need to change in order for that to be mm -hmm. completely true. Um, and you know, in a, in a, in a circumstance where, um, where there is this underlying belief what, around what the, you, what the future holds doubt, but, but let me, let me, let me articulate so, so, two things on that. There's, okay. there's a disconnect between the futurists, the progressives and the reality of the average consumer who does not live in an urban center. Okay. And I, I've sat at like these futurist conferences in New York where they start talking about like, oh, we're going to go into Queens and we could do like these micro distribution centers like Amazon has. And, and, you know, we could have like autonomous vehicles delivering things and this and that. And I was like, well, one, you don't have the road space for that. Two, you, you don't necessarily have the infrastructure for that. And three, there's a cultural shift that has to happen whereby there's value in the community that they're not so downtrodden that they're just not going to go and, you know, uh, create shenanigans with the robots running around. And we've seen that, that problem in California. But, you know, to, to, to kind of like echo Tristan's point, you, you've got the Zaibatsus on the high end, which is or like Kiritsus or just unified fronts of cuss companies or, or, or as, you know, DC used to like uh, alluding to Chirols, which is like the Korean version um, about a decade or two ago. And then at the bottom, you've got smaller companies where people have picked up a trade and they're going to stay in that company with that trade and they might switch companies, but more likely they're going to be in those trades for years. And those trades are actually paying like 100, 200, 300 an hour, you know, and, and they're not necessarily finding people. And what we were left with is this big vacuum in the middle. We've got all this technology coming in. You've got all these industries that are kind of changing at the same time. And you've got people just figuring out, like, you know, what is my actual worth? Where's my value? And, like, how much do I actually want to enjoy my life? And that's the big difference, I think. That's, like, Gen X was halfway there. Millennials, like, you know, are muddling through it. But Gen Z understands that, you know? And, and they're, they're making some of the changes that 
I personally think that us as, you know, Xers and millennials should have, right? They're like, okay, well, New York's too expensive. We'll move to Rhode Island. We can have a job that pays two thirds as much, but we can buy that house and we can settle in a decent community and we have the amenities we want. And there's a big population migration that's happening. I don't know if you're seeing this in Australia, but just the outflows during COVID from New York State, like there was almost 750,000 people who left the city. Mm. Yeah. So, so what I'm what I'm want to know a bit more about what you were saying with that, Tristan, is is um, the the behaviours I think are the manifestation of kind of the underlying values, particularly in Gen Z and, and millennials. Um, and the behaviours are t- turbulent, turbulent movement in the workforce. Um, you know, really. So low, uh, low degree of, of, of tenure and and um, uh, company loyalty, I guess. You know, a lot of movement, mm-hmm. and I, I think that comes on the back of opportunity, where the the market being um, being really competitive for for workers um, has allowed the opportunity for those uh, for those values to manifest, where they 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 don't. Um, they don't look at uh, at company loyalty and security as being the the utmost importance because, as as you said, people aren't um, are effectively through um, through their own vision of the future pushing themselves out of the the housing market. They they don't have any interest in in participating in it. I think that's a contributing factor. So, what what do you think will change or should change that moves us away from where we are now in terms of like from a recruitment standpoint like how do they how do they recruit retain a lot of the in industrial levels of innovation present in direct to consumer stuff like it's it's always one of two things it's a way of getting the customer's money before you have to create their product therefore having more efficiency in warehousing logistics um shelf life etc um uh, or you know that that we can call the the mcdonald's pink paste model um with the uh your the the chicky nuggies you're attacking it from shelf life and you're storing something that can be used to make multiple things with it have uh, you know, variation in order flow. Um, what I think this is likely to cause is a loss of a lot. And I mean, a lot of jobs. Um, and there's, there's no, there's no way hugely around it. Um, I think that we've been actively avoiding what technology can do for mass production. And instead, all we're ending up doing is outsourcing cruelty to nations that have poorer labor standards mm-hmm. to, to become essentially parasitic organisms within our larger economic environment um, while we talk about protecting you know workers rights and we're, we're actually just prolonging 
sweatshops more than we're protecting workers in our own own side of the world like how many people do you know outside of a farm or a work site or warehouse that do something that you know really is you know work that you sweat over like mm-hmm. yeah like brick bricklayers like, trades like, yeah apart from that it's all uh, to be honest yeah. like I don't actually see something that I think has a place in the future when I look at a transaction in a city where I see like a $12 coffee being bought uh, by someone who's recently been funded for some, you know, startup that's got a less than 100%, sorry, less than one per one hundredth of a percent chance of turning around money. And they've they they're using fictitious capital that's come from some loan that's never going to be paid off on a house somewhere. I look at the the amount of activity that looks like this that can really be fixed if we started using larger zaibatsu type like organizations that have a seriously like solid administrative flow between mm-hmm. this is doing with what we're mining or we're growing in a farm or we're importing step by step and we have a really, really solid data flow of our consumer processes. This is where a lot of things are going to get good for the environment as well. But when I, the more and more I looked into it, the more I was like, hang on, mm-hmm. this looks scary. More mega corporations are on the way. And then I started thinking, okay, well, what, what, what can I come to expect from this? And uh, I think that it's going to give a lot less of a chance to people like me who've experienced a massive amount of vertical mobility, just like being hungry and actually wanting to, to be that way. Um, and it'll, it'll suck for people who enjoy the gladiator pit because it's going to become four, five different channels of UFC instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, <clears throat> for the people who are playing uh you know soccer or football or what have you uh doing wage work they're going to be they're going to have five or six mega corporations that have insane efficiency of creating value that have to win them over from the other five but but tristan for that to really work think about this those mega corporations have to feed into the supply chain and evaluation chain in a way where the the traditional greenwashing of technology and manufacturing companies just goes by the wayside. Like the, the first problem we have is forced obsolescence. And we see this in vehicles, we see this in technology products, we see this in iPhones, we see this in Google Chromebooks, which are sold to schools, that these things become obsolete in very short periods of time. And by that period of time, we're talking three to five years, right? So a, a lot, a lot of these, like, you know, you, you'll buy one of these newer cars and they start falling apart um, in three to five years. You you buy a Tesla and the you know the plastics aren't at the same standard that plastics were in, in other cars, and you'll have fit and finish issues about two years into that car. Or or the worst thing now is that what they're finding that those battery sleds, which you know uh, have an eight point two year uh, carbon impact, like it's 8.2 years worth of like car carbon emission to create that sled. Those sleds are are burning out like after three or four years and you have to replace the whole sled. So I, I call that all greenwashing. And, and if we're going to fix this, it's one having like the Zaibatsus or larger companies that have that capacity to get the raw materials there 
Two, it's realizing that a lot of the stuff that you buy is made by slaves or it's made by slave labor or it's made by people that are being paid a substandard wage that's less than a living wage. And that's internationally. Um, I mean, you know, China is one example of this. India is another example where there's challenges. But you, you go into the entire APAC region and, and you see they're leveraging economies of scale, but they may not be paying people a living wage, right? Um, and you, you see it definitely with um, Philippine domestics all over, you know, I would, I was just half of the world where these women go to work for half of their lives to pay for their kids, but they never see their kids. They might see them when they're 10 and they'll see them when they graduate school, you know, but they're not going back there twice a year. They're not doing these types of things. And if we think about us wanting to raise the standard of living, to raise the quality of products, to raise all of this, like a lot of those old adages of like, build something that burns out in a couple of years, has to shift. And, and, that, and that greenwashing that comes with it, like we're building a green product, all of that e-trash ends up in Africa. All of that e-trash ends up around indigenous people or you know, developing nations people or first world's people, for the most part, if you look at where these giant dumps are. And, and that's part and parcel of what has to be fixed too, because you can talk empathy all you want, but if your cultural ethos is to sit there and just be destructive, it's nothing more than greenwashing. So where where does where do you think the leadership comes in at like a, a mid senior level, even upper management, uh, in relation to each one of those? We can break down because there's, there's a few issues there that we've um, that we've covered. What mm-hmm. relationship does does leadership as a concept and the actions of the people in each one of those levels have on? each one of those those problems interesting why don't you go first and then because i have i have a, a very sort of like stack perspective on this having worked with all the industries i have yeah well yeah i've i've i'd say this this differs country to country industry by industry uh tier by tier and nature of work by nature of work. So, uh, I, I don't know where to start. Could you give a more specific example? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's start at a real at an entry level. So, um, there are a lot of people who exist as uh, sort of direct um, direct reports to, or everyone who's in a sort of service level. Uh, position. Um, what is what is good leadership there? What impact does it have on um, on these issues? You want me to take that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly explain why I shouldn't answer that question because I think it'll it'll help set the stage better. <laughs> um, so how? how... <laughs> This is this is this is a fun fun way of looking at the Rubik's cube of startups and really the the gauntlet that innovation in the current form of capitalism can be. Is that mm-hmm. like you you're looking for a role that you're fashioning on the go, right? This isn't something that comes from a factory. This is something you have to carve with your hands, and 
you're going to have to trial different people with different mixes of interdisciplinary understandings to get it right. And probably the correct thing to do is work with a few of them because all of their insights are going to be of value. However, it, you're going to have trouble finding one that fits that description, has uh, a good company fit um, and has longevity to their contribution. And so mm. you get stuck with a position where you're trying your absolute best to be a transformative and positive leader for these people, because if you're getting a bunch of brilliant people and if you want highly motivated, brilliant people, like you have to be highly motivated and brilliant at managing to provide that thing for them. Right. That's not a, it's not a fucker. Um, of yeah. a yeah. So I've, I've often fired a lot of people by saying, Hey, I've got to know your skill set a little better. And I know what you want to do in the future. And I'm a really bad option for you to get that through. And they're sitting there like, what employee, like, first of all, that they, first they're like, this is altruistic, but is this a masochistic weirdo or something? Why is this firing <laughs> a good fit? Um, and I'm like, no, no, no. It's not that I couldn't exploit you very well at this stage of this company's growth. It's that I want someone who's going to remain invested and interested and tied to this company culture. And you can't be that person without me manipulating you the wrong way. And so over time at best, you're going to be adding to my to-do list. No, yeah. I want you mm. where you are best. I want someone yeah. in that position who's going to grow to the greatest heights that that garden bed can offer that type of plant. I want the right plant. It's a great point that you raise with that too, because my, my, in my experience with, with leadership and with, uh, with people is that that's the fundamental difference between a manager and a leader, because if you were to keep that person on and try and just squeeze every last little bit of work that you could or potential out of them to get what you can from them, that's, mm -hmm. that's what a manager does. You know, a leader does everything they can to uh, or gives everything they can to the person that reports to them possible and ensure that the interests are as aligned as can possibly get because i mm. want that i want that whole psyche behind that task it takes that mm, yeah. off the ground that no one believes in yet it takes that you know yeah, what sure. i'd add to this is is i see this as a bifurcated issue because you have to set the ground, then you can build the stage, right? You know, and, and if you kind of consider like how some of the more complicated things in the world, the Taj Mahal, like, you know, Roman buildings were built, half of the time the ground was soft. And so they had to, they, Venice, for example, like they had to just hammer logs into the ground and they had to stabilize the ground and they built a, a platform and they built the city on it. And here the ground is not stable. And the reason the ground is not stable, at least in America, was because in the 90s, there was a decoupling of minimum wage and health care from each other. So that was under the Clinton administration. And they said, well, hey, you know, you, you have to pay for your health care now, but you're getting a higher minimum wage. But they're like, yeah, but like we're now making less money because of that being bad policy. OK. And, and I personally think that in and this is going to be controversial for a lot of my conservative colleagues, but I, I, I kind of think that conservatives and Democrats um, when they get to like the, the state and the federal level, 
often have that like shock of horror face that there's a meme of Hillary going around, but it's that shock of horror face when they go into a working class house because they, they don't, they've never seen anything like that. Right. And, and they're so just like disconnected from the reality of the working class. If you fix that piece of it, whereby, you know, in America, this, this deals with like broken exchanges and the ACA and private healthcare and, and really needing to, to cut costs and a lot of things. And we talked about that before, but you know, that Zaibatsu type strategy, like if the government were to put public private partnerships in place by which they can acquire things in a more meaningful fashion, cheaper, better, and especially if they could do bulk purchasing, right? Like bulk purchasing, Negro Ponte had talked about this in the 90s, that like what the internet should do is allow for collective bulk purchasing at volume at discount. And if you're able to do that within the, the healthcare establishment through public-private partnerships, you bring that down, you can recouple it back with minimum wage. That solves a lot of people's issues. Okay, that's number one. But number two, and I think that that's, that's you know, leadership from the electeds. Uh, but on the opposite side of this, um, the, the, the challenge is really one of good leadership. And what we find from restaurants up is that you have bad shift managers, bad managers, a lot of people that are, are held to a lot of standards that they themselves can't necessarily meet. And we're, we're seeing this really exacerbated after COVID. Like how many times have you gone into a pizza shop to get a pizza and there's like one person working and there's one person delivering. And you always get some Karen coming in after a period of time screaming about her pizza. And I'm like, I'm like, she got 10 orders back there that I can read tickets off of. I'm like, you're probably in the middle of there. I'm like, I don't think she's going to make pizzas faster than she's making them right now. There's one person <laughs> back there. Um, yeah. You know, and and uh, this is this is kind of across the board. But let's say that, like, they're, they're even reasonably well-staffed. You know, the, the prices of everything have gone up. And so consumers have issues, management has issues, margins are being cut. Um, there's more and more, you know, uh, I, I think almost like criminal issues that we're seeing with like wage theft and tip theft and this and that and everything else. And that's, that's where a lot of this comes from. This stems from those types of problems. But if you were to take it then into different levels of industry, the leadership problems, outside of fixing the bad leadership, which you have at line level, Mid-level management drift is just absolutely atrocious. And some of the corporate structures that were called flat structures like Google, like Meta, like these types of things, when you have the mass firings that you've recently had, you have a lot of people that are not reporting to anyone anymore and don't know what to do. You, you have like articles that are coming out where, where people were hired inside of divisions that were downsizing, so they didn't do anything for a year but were paid $190,000 salaries. You, you have that, that's the, the middle mix, okay? And then you have on top of that, the director problem. The director problem across um, the globe, it's not just America, is that anything that could come in that could be dramatically transformative for the company will not be embraced by directors, which means that it will not trickle down in terms of policy or action or, or change management in, in leadership or change management in company operations simply because the directors don't want to rock the boat and risk their bonuses. Because once you've made it to that level, you're being bonused anywhere between you know, 100,000 and 5 million a year, sometimes more. Why would you want to mess with that? You know, you, yeah. you have your, your life the way it is. 
And on the executive level, which is where the biggest problem is, you don't have a lot of innovators. There are no Jack Welshes. There are very few Larry Ellisons left. And there's damn well almost no Elon Musks. You know, the, the people that are just kind of like the crazy innovators that are like, you know, we could go in and go into this brand new industry and do all these different things. And a lot of this is because of the fiscal nature of how these companies are evaluated and the fact that they always want to adhere to quarterly shareholder guidelines and they want to return. If we had a loosening of the generally accepted accounting practices of gap accounting, and we had a little bit of a loosening in terms of what the filing requirements were for these companies in terms of when they were supposed to turn a yield, that creates a trickle-down effect by which you could shift some of these things. Now, some of these companies are just going to leverage that, and they're going to buy their own stock back and do a bunch of other things because, you know what, they'll never change. But I think a good portion of these companies could change, and they become far more successful. And if you look at things like Young and Rubicam's brand asset valuator, which literally shows you which brands are like growing to become successful brands and which ones are like aging out and failing. And, and we've seen like, just think about this beauty, fashion, luxury, automotive, technology, computers. I mean, half of the brands that you're seeing these days aren't brands that were really around 30 years ago. These are all new, right? Um, mm -hmm. And at the same point in time, the brands that have doubled down in terms of an ethos, a culture, a good leadership format, even if they drive people a little hard, you know, especially in fashion and beauty and things like that, there's at least a value proposition that people feel at the end of the day. They feel merit. They feel that they've done something cool. You know, they, they, they see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. They see that there's upward mobility. But in your service roles, and I would dare say even in a lot of your corporate roles where people are not seeing that, you get malaise. And I think across the industry, we've got tremendous malaise. We've got problems at each one of these four levels of management. And it's just going to get worse before it gets better, simply because if there's not an incentive or an invective from the executive leadership down to fix or change things, and, and we've seen this with companies like, you know, there's a couple guys in Seattle that increased like their, their paid platforms or increased their bonusing structures and this and that. And, and there's a lot more happy employees. There's a lot more productivity. It, it just doesn't work. And, and that really strikes me as such that, okay, it's a hundred year cycle. What's most likely going to happen is that we're going to see some transformation in terms of the methodology by which capitalism is employed. And with the Crypto Oracle Collective I work with, we've got some interesting new models that are bubbling up. I'm seeing this inside of, you know, blockchain-based uh, collectives, organizations, guilds. I'm seeing this in gaming. I'm seeing this in a couple of other industries. But, you know, to Tristan's point, like your traditional industries, yeah, they still got a ways to go. So I want to ask both of you, two questions and you've led me into this perfectly oh so thank you for that <clears throat> what what makes a good leader what are the characteristics of a good leader is the first question and the second one is what strategies does a modern leader need to employ in this post-covid professional landscape 
so I'd love for each of you to to give me what you think what do you think each of those are. Uh, Tristan, do you want to go first? Let me go first. Um, I've got too too many different definitions of leadership, which I think all fall down to the intention of said leadership and the parameters by which you can measure something a win or a loss. Um, so like, uh, this is one that I learned really through sports is it's no different to like Bruce Lee said, the best way is no way. As soon as you're stuck in a crystallization of a methodology, you're, you're, you're suddenly limited, right? Like, uh, Michael Jordan won through tyrannical leadership. Um, however, he, he backed it up by it being an environment in which constant competition, uh, did take preference. You know, there was a, it was a moral environment to be hyper competitive in that win basketball games. So there you've got a measurement parameter that can make something that in other scenarios is ineffective or not legal or just a worse way of going about life even if it gets this mm -hmm. done is another way to look at it and so i look at kobe bryant's uh leadership style when he had a far worse team than the chicago bulls and managed to win it against it the hardest uh playoffs and final series ever um where he'd spent years doing the competitive tyrant leadership stuff. So, you know, what makes a good leader is in, inside of finance um, and blockchain and crypto and technology, we always talk about KYC, which is know your customer, right? And, you know, that, that means a lot of different things. In, in Adland, it was like actually knowing the profiles and who we're marketing to. Um, in technology, it's knowing who we're, we're kind of targeting and there could be like deep dives in information. And in finance, it's just being able to, to qualify people. But mm -hmm. I think in terms of management, it's KYE, okay? It's know your employees and you need to know who they are. You need to know their strengths. You need to know their weaknesses. You need to know their encumbrances. And a lot of that could be like, you've got a great employee She's got to be out of the office early three days a week because of her kids or, you know, you have an employee and they have a, a sick uh, family member that they're accommodating for. You have an employee who's working through a substance abuse issue. And I've had all these employees. OK, and what you do is you figure out how to work with them so that they add the best value to the team. But you do it in a manner, manner and fashion that's empathetic. You do it in a manner and fashion whereby you're engaging with them. And you do it in a manner and fashion where you can make work something that you know you're doing, that you're driving forward, that you're building for either the startup or the corporation or the large corporation that you're working for. But you're doing it in a way where they feel valued, they feel empowered, they feel part of the process, and they feel that they have input. And when there's issues that you actually take those issues seriously and you figure out how to manage and mitigate them. And sometimes that may mean involving HR in other cases that might, might mean a whole bunch of other things. Um, but usually if there's a utility case for you to 
work with your people to bring out the best in them, that's good leadership. And if there's a way by which you can be empathetic to understand like some of their limitations or some of their challenges, that makes you a better leader. Now, in praxis, um, you know, how do you do this? Sometimes it, it's a little bit of bending the rules in, in a good way. I'll give you an example. There was a guy I wanted to hire as a business analyst. Um, and this was back when I was at Transworld Entertainment. And I had, I had like five direct reports. And then I had a team of like 55 to 70 underneath them. And it was mostly third-party consultants who were using. Um, and this was managing uh, a web system uh, for all of the music stores in the United States, ostensibly that sold online through the FYE.com brand. Um, uh, as well as the listening viewing stations in the stores and a variety of other technology that we had that was implemented together, um, like order kiosks in the stores. So it was like this this huge tech web system um, that we had two to three different you know vendors um, onshore and offshore working on. And this was one of my key guys that I was hiring, and you know he wanted to take the the role and. HR was only offering him one week of vacation a year because, you know, he was like mid-level but not senior. Um, and I said, look, if, if that's a sticking point for you, you have one, my word on this, and two, we'll work something out. But I said, you know, the team likes you. You've interviewed with everyone here. Um, I will give you an extra week of vacation a year. Uh, it can't be completely simultaneous. Like, you can't take it all at once. But we'll work it out. You know, we'll count the days together. And as long as I'm here, you got it. And and what was interesting is like when we had uh, Deloitte come in and I saw my salary in a spreadsheet and I was like, yeah, I guess I got about two months left. And, you know, there was there was a big like corporate pivot. And I think I talked about this once before, but I'll, I'll say it again. Like Bob Higgins, who was our CEO, thought the Internet was a fad. And he had literally told Steve Jobs on the phone that uh, he didn't think that digital sales of music were going to work because, you know, the offer was put on the table to make the Apple iTunes store, the FYE store in the phone. And he kind of told Jobs to go and, and F himself. Yeah, Nostradamus. <laughs> well, we were just sitting there and we're like, that was a really bad decision. I guess I'm not going to be here that long, you know? Um and I stayed there for like another two years, you know, because it was just fun to run. It was I got to work with a lot of technology and interesting people. And, you know, it was in, in, it was in like like nowhere land. It was in Albany, New York. Um, but, you know, you, you, you kind of I guess I grew up around like I grew up outside of Appalachia. And it's it's, it's a cross between city and country and redneck. And that, that's what you have up there. So it was it was interesting. But um you know, the, the, the challenges that I've seen inside of those companies and some other things are, are it's, it's kind of lessons in what not to do in management. And I could write a whole book about this. Like I had a CTO that uh, I was direct report to um, and I had a cross-functional report to a director who was at my same level simply because the guy had been there for like 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and there was, there was, you know, issues with him just because, well, I was making more than the guy I was reporting to, not the CTO, but, um, you know, there's a lot of bad management practice in there. There's a lot of, you know, holding people emotionally hostage, telling, you know, I got told, I had to go to 
a family wedding overseas okay which you know it's just like just going to the goddamn thing is like seven thousand dollars right that's not including like what you're it's like 10 g's all in all just to go there plus you know staying for because muslim weddings are long um you know staying for all, all the the events and you know meeting my relatives and then coming back and you know i'd get told things that like if this contract wasn't negotiated by the time your your vacation comes up i'm not authorizing it and i was like I don't know what to tell you. Like, you can write me up, but um, uh, that's going to happen. And then, um, you know, or or like just weird things that we have to do. Like one time we had Broadwing for our DNS, um, which is just, you know, it's like how you route all of the the incoming requests from the Internet to the the servers that you have and, and route them back out. And they had a massive outage. And we were taking on... This is like 2002, 2003. We were taking 10 to 12 million concurrent users at a time. No, sorry. It was two, up to 2 million concurrent users, but we're getting like 10 to 12 million a month on that site, which is a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So DNS goes down in the middle of the day. It's a website goes down. I, my phone just gets starting like lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, and I was like, well, the DNS is down. Um, you know, there's there's nothing that we can really do about that, but I may have a workaround. And I had like the CMO, um, his VP, a bunch of other people saying, do whatever you can. So I had to go to my CTO and this was a guy who wanted to punish the marketing establishment because they wouldn't follow the, the, the technology process the way technology what he wanted it to run. And he would oftentimes like, you know, it's uh, the, the better manager would work with marketing to say, hey, what is it you want? And they say, I want this. And they go, no, what you really want is this. But instead of doing that, consistently would let them like design something and set them up for failure and build it and then see that's not what you wanted. So what they should have done is is said that there was a solution and, and we should do it. Um, so what? <laughs> What I ended up doing, and this is I've done this a couple times in corporate America, and you either get slapped on the hand or you get lauded for it. And I got both in this case. So I grabbed my Unix administrator, and I'm like, I think I have two servers sitting in a box at home. So we went back to my apartment. We stood one up. We literally sat it in the living room on a desk, wired it up to Ethernet, um, you know, because I had, like, the higher-end package of Wi-Fi at home. And we rerouted all the DNS for a site taking hundreds of thousands of, of hits a minute through my living room. <laughs> and, and it ran that way for two days, you know, and I got written up for it. Um, it but it was just so dumb. It's just like, so let me get this straight. You'd much rather not have business continuity to punish the marketing establishment then have business continuity and like just talk me up to them mm-hmm. and you know it, it was it was one of these these times in corporate america where i'm like this isn't just bad management this is bad culture and yep. i think if, if you're you're going to fix the issues with bad management you have to address the issues with bad and toxic culture uh as you do this but i think what you're going to find is that there's so many of these companies that have you know, kind of beaten people into a pulp um, in terms of like, you know, do this, don't do that. You know, and, and a lot of times with your executives, it's, it's, it's do as I say, not as I do, right? And so that, that always creates like this 
negative culture inside of the company. Um, and I've seen this in, in many, many organizations. Um, I've been in a situation before where I had hired the highest qualified person who happened to be a black developer that could work on kernel level stuff. And I had, um, I can't say who the client is because it was a, it was a, a pretty large financial institution, but I had like one of the, um, you know, the, the senior VPs come back and go unhire that N word. And I, I'm just sitting there like, what the F? And because they didn't want black men working in their financial institution. Um, you know, I've had to deal with some real toxic culture over the course yeah. of years. And, and I think what makes good leadership is look, when you talk inclusivity, actually be inclusive. And what that means is it's not just being inclusive to a couple of groups. If you're going to include secular people and LGBTQ people, you also include religious people. You also include minorities and other people that, you know, could fit these jobs and could like really be successful for your company and add a depth and breadth to what your organizational efficiency is. Right. Um, secondarily, you have to cater to a culture that allows for the, the changing norms of what people actually want to do with their lives, because it's not about working 12, 14 hours every day anymore. Um, it's more so about a work-life balance, a work-family balance, these types of things, and making sure that that's there. And then third is, you know, I, I, I'd say don't be nefarious. Um, especially if you are like the only industry in an area and there's no substitute industry, like Walmart was getting robbed because, you know, Chicago has like some of the weirdest laws out there. It's a gun free zone, but they have the highest crime because illegal guns are easily addressable, but no one talks about that. They've got, they've had poor leadership. They've, they've had a carve out of their police. You know, they've had all these problems, but they closed four Walmarts. And so what they did effectively was they created massive food deserts. Like this is like the 1990s when you'd go down to Cabrini Greens and like the only place to eat was this fish fry place, which by the way is delicious. But like there's, I mean, you, there, there's nowhere to buy any food outside of like a pizza puff place and a fish fry place. And then mm -hmm. like, you know, like they boarded up entire projects because of gang issues and things like that. Like you're creating more of the same perpetual issues and societal drama that doesn't need to happen when this could be fixed with something as simple as saying, okay, well then we're going to retailer the layout of the Walmart and people are going to come in and we'll, we'll have them use touch screens like in McDonald's to ask and order for things. And someone will bring the products to them. If that's how bad your shrinkage problem is. Um, cause you look at target in San Francisco and I mean, <laughs> the entire store is on lockdown. Like, Mm. There were pictures of it. It's like every single aisle, every single product, the clothing is all locked behind. Like someone has to come and bring a key and open it up for you to get anything. So, you know, it's, it's, it's having a corporate culture that understands like how you can actually work with communities and not just viewing them as like, you know, numbers. Um, and then fourth is a change. You know, Tristan really raised the issue about like Zaibatsus or Kiritsus or Chirols, just big fronts of companies. 
But we need to get into vertically integrated industries, again, that can reduce costs and provide a lot of benefit, whereby tradespeople and skilled labor and knowledge workers and all these different aspects of that supply chain can be integrated in a way where people have a path up, people have a path you know, into broader diversified things inside of that company, and, and people can find a way forward for themselves in their lives. People are dynamic now, they are changing, their expectations are changing, their palates are changing. Um, I mean, you know, sushi wasn't really a thing in the 1990s across most of them, in the 1980s, or into the 90s. The 90s, it kind of started taking off. Um, in America, like, people didn't know what it was. Like, into the, you go into the OOs, and a lot of people just had no idea what sushi was or had never eaten it. And now you're talking about mm. goddamn sushi bunt cakes on Instagram, yeah. you know? Uh, I mean, it's, it's just the nature of the beast of Western societies is that because, especially America, is because the American culture is a, a melting pot of bringing things in, interesting things come out. And the best thing that you can have in terms of leadership is to understand that the changing nature of America is secular, is religious, is multi-minority, is also, you know, um, call it a, a variety of black and white traditionalists, right, that have uh, their feet in, in many, many different communities and have very different perspectives on, on what things are. But if you can take kind of that broader view, and, and globally, you know, it's, it's taking an international view of this stuff, figure out how to work better together across these teams. Um, I've seen this, the same problems working in Europe, you know, like the, the French hate the Germans and the Germans hate the, <laughs> hate, you know, hate the Spanish. And because um, in German, I mean, it's, you don't say, I, I don't know what you said. You say, es klang mir Spanish for, you know, it's like, it sounds like Spanish to me. Um, so you, 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 still, like, you still have all these, these problems over there you know it's just it's and 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 even like the regional things that like you know most people here are just like they're like oh they're all white people i'm like yeah no like you understand that's like that village hates that village and they don't like those people down the street because you know they eat like pork feet or something like that and, and then we have the same thing in india we have the same thing in the middle eastern countries we have the same thing uh, everywhere so I, I think the last thing is really understanding nuance you know Effective leadership going into the 2030s has to understand, know your employees, nuance, the best way to motivate and, and, and get people together with empathy, um, the best way to compensate those people and be flexible within the constraints of like what your company can or cannot provide. And, and more than, than that is to really treat them like people and kind of figure out, is there a way for them to grow with you? Is there a way for them to expand their wings? Um, because, you know, not everyone's supposed to stay everywhere forever. Um, and sometimes you do lose some of your good people. And there's better people behind them. There's equivalent people behind them. There's worse people behind them. But there has to be a, a thought process change. And I don't know if it bears, you know, writing like a Jack Welsh type book about it. But leadership needs to be mission, vision, and value orientated and have an idea of what they want to do. But what I'm seeing post-COVID is that you have a lot of leaders that don't know their head from their ass 
a lot of like leaders in companies, specifically startups that don't know what to do. And a lot of leaders inside of companies where because of COVID, the entire nature of their business has started to change and they're unwilling to change. And that's going to make them fragile and fragile things break. And when they break, someone else is going to come and replace what they are. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll just kind of close with is I think there needs to be some capitalistic shifts in terms of what we perceive as traditional capitalism and, you know, what we see as um, Austrian economics and that sort of a thing. And I think where it may be going is actually back to the past than the future, but the future may have elements of the past and the future itself. Um, you know, I work with the Crypto Oracle Collective. And we have a democratized way of getting people into projects, but then also getting them compensated, whether that's in dollar or token. And I personally think that better management tools, better project management tools, and realizing that the partners that you work with could become more assets and allies to you, akin to the way that Oracle has done it, akin to the way that SAP has done it, akin to the way that, you know, again, the, the, Kiritsu, the, the uh, Zaibatsu, the Chirol, the unified friends of companies, these are companies that work with each other. So they realize that there is more to be benefited from working with each other and doing handoffs and doing all these different things in terms of services. You look at the, the agency model that's out there, 70% of stuff that agencies do is outsourced to mm. you know a, a bunch of contractors. And, you know, the, the whole gig economy that we didn't really talk about, which is a huge piece of this, um, you have a lot of folks that do AI, this move into blockchain, this move into all of the new technologies that are going to bubble up inside the next couple of years. How you, as a leader, put together a strategy that allows you to make those things more assets to you than things that you go like, no, 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 we're not talking about that. Because if you don't do it, your competition will. And if you can't do it in a way where you're KYEing, know your employees and working with them, and whether it's training or retraining or you know pivoting or a variety of other things that have to be done, if you don't do that, you won't be successful. And you know what? Your success is really laden upon the backs of those people that work for you. And if they don't feel that you're allowing them to be successful, you won't be successful. And at the end of the day, it's just not going to work. Well, yeah, really thoughts. well said. Really well said. Um, and I think that's a that's a great place to to leave it. Um, and really, really great uh, topics covered covered today, and 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 really insightful, really um, really uh, thoughtful um, responses from both you and and Tristan. Um, unfortunately, he's um, he's had to had to leave, but. Um, yeah, I think he left. It was the Kiwi internet again. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I think probably the latter, if anything. <laughs> um, but no, thank you for uh, thank you for joining uh, us on the uh, the third installment of, of the Wizard and Oz podcast. Uh, it's been a it's been a really good one, and um, we'll be back next week. Excellent. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks.